Hi everyone, Olivia Newton-John here and I just wanted to wish Stephen Spears a very happy 15th anniversary for his podcast Stuck in the 80s. Well done Stephen, here's to another 15. Bye. She charmed us with her soft 70s chart toppers. She made us swoon as Sandy and Grease. She transformed into our muse as Kira and Xanatu. She gave the world a catalog of hits that will cherish for decades. And in the end, she showed us the power of courage, hope, light, and love. Olivia Newton-John has sadly passed at age 73, but her legacy will remain here to stay. Olivia's husband, John Easterling, announced her passing on social media, writing, Dame Olivia Newton-John passed away peacefully at her ranch in Southern California this morning, surrounded by family and friends. We ask that everyone please respect the family's privacy during this very difficult time. Olivia has been a symbol of triumphs and hope for over 30 years, sharing her journey with breast cancer. Her healing inspiration and pioneering experience with plant-based medicine continues with the Olivia Newton-John Foundation Fund dedicated to researching plant medicine and cancer. Her family is asking that any donations be made in her memory to that organization. You can find it online at onjfoundationfund.org. Stuck in the 80s will be making a donation to the fund as well. So, Steve, how did you find out about her passing? Oh, God, I think I actually saw something on Facebook, which is something I'm trying to spend less time on these days. <laughs> um, but I saw a photo of her with no caption, and mm. I just I just knew that's, you know, it was the worst of news. Yeah, I asked that because I know the answer to for me is pretty much always my friend, the angel of death, who texts me when anybody from the 80s passes away. I got a text message from him approximately five seconds before I got a text message from my older sister telling me the same thing. I was like, oh, really? Mm. There's something about Olivia Newton-John that her health problems were well known. But there was something about her where in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, she'll live forever. She's not going to die. Like there's, There's some people who you just don't see passing away. Right. And she was one of those to me. Well, she was Kira. Uh, yeah. I mean, there, there you go. There's the show. She was Kira. Uh, I, so many tributes from fellow artists followed uh, her death on August 8th. Uh, John Travolta was the one that I went to first. I knew he'd have something to say because the two of them have, have remained great friends since Greece. And so he wrote, quote, my dearest Olivia, you made all of our lives so much better. Your impact was incredible. I love you so much. We will see you down the road, and we will all be together again. Yours from the first moment I saw you and forever. You're Danny. You're John. Mm. Keith Urban and Nicole Kidman said, Livy brought the most divine light into the world. 
So much love, joy, inspiration, and kindness. And we will always be hopelessly devoted to you. I knew people from Greece would sound off. And uh, the director, Randall Kleiser, said, She was one of a kind, and so very kind. For over four decades of our friendship, she exuded nothing but love to everyone she met. Olivia was exactly the way you imagined her. I will miss her forever. None other than Richard Marks, the old softy, wrote, My heart is broken. Rest now, sweet friend. You are as kind and loving a person as there's ever been, and I'll miss you every day. For those who didn't know, um, ONJ published a memoir in early 2021 called Olivia Newton-John, Don't Stop Believing. And for those younger listeners out there, the book is named after her song from 1976 called Don't Stop Believing, long before Journey had the same song. Huh. It's it's funny when you read it now because that's your your mind goes. That's as, where your your main yeah right. It's 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 interesting. She picked that song as her as her memoir title. But if you, but when you read it, you realize it it sums up her uh, thoughts on life and the challenges that she faced. Um, the memoir which I have I have the audible version. I have the the print version, uh, the hardcover. It covers so much of her life and her career up through her, her battles with breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And it was written, or co-written, I should say, or ghost-written, I should say, by Cindy Gaber, who is a longtime writer uh, about movies for the New York Times Syndicate and the author of the Sunday With column for the Las Vegas Review newspaper. She's also the writer behind the Amazing Ascenders book series, if you're familiar with that. Hmm. Okay. I was lucky enough to spend like a half hour with her recently to talk about her memories of Olivia and uh, and working on a book with her. Yeah, I listened to this interview the other day while I was out for a run, and um, it's it's amazing. You're going to get something out of this. I don't care where you where you are on Olivia Newton John. Uh, you're going to enjoy this. So sit back, grab a hanky, and enjoy this chat with author Cindy Gaber as she remembers her time working with Olivia Newton John on her memoir. Cindy, welcome to Stuck in the 80s. Thank you, Steve. Thanks so much for having me on the show. So excited to talk to you. I just, uh, I've been reading your book that you co-wrote with uh, Olivia Newton-John, Don't Stop Believing. Just a a great uh, way to honor her life. Oh, thank you. It was just such an amazing experience working with her. It's such a tragic loss for everyone. She was one of a, one in a million. How did you come to, to get to know her and, and get involved in that project? You know, the funny thing was, as a reporter in Chicago, I had interviewed her several times. Uh, one of my gigs for years has been the New York Times Wire. So every time she had an album come out, we would interview her. And she was lovely and gracious and wonderful. And uh, her publicist recommended me to, to her when she was looking for some writers to work with her on her book. And we had another meeting in Chicago really quick on her tour bus. And she's very, just very sweet. And she was like, thanks, dear. Or love. She would call you love. Thanks, love. And and about a week later, I got a call saying, you got it. And she wants to hire you. But that was 10 years ago. Wow. And, and then she got super busy with other things. So we kind of put it on hold. And then all of a sudden, a few years ago, she called me back and said, remember, from 10 years ago, do you still want to do it? And of course I did. And then she's like, well, I'm serious. I'd like to do it now. So that was 
it kind of coinciding with her finding out that she had cancer again. So I think part of it was she wanted to tell her story her way that, you know, she had done a lot of interviews in her life, but when you read all the interviews, she really, there was so much she did not reveal till this book. I, I interviewed her once about 12, 13 years ago. And she's, she's a sweetheart, but she's, she's also, she's, you know, she has answers to your questions and she, you know, her personal life is her personal life. I remember her agent had said, you know, there's some certain things that she'd rather not talk about. So we didn't. Right. And, and she, she came across as, you know, like I said, a, a super sweet person, but also someone who's, you know, protective of her personal life and, and some, and some of the stories. And so I'm just kind of wondering how, when you interviewed her and in, in the process of doing the book, you know, did, I'm assuming she had, she had to open up a little bit. She opened a lot. You know, there's always a moment in all books where sort of the floodgates open and they really start talking to you. And, and um, she had a great idea that I come to her house and just live there for a little bit with her, which I did. And one night uh, the cute, cute thing about her was besides 300 other thousand things was she had a chicken coop in her backyard with about 20 chickens and she was like, well, do you want scrambled eggs for dinner? So I was like, yeah, breakfast for dinner. So she goes, oh, love, go outside and go get some eggs from my chickens. Now, I'm from Chicago. I don't do farm things in, <laughs> in my regular life. And I have to say, the chickens were like a little scary to me. They looked nice, but they looked like, don't take my egg. And uh, so I was like, Olivia, could you come out here? And she thought that was very funny. And uh, she taught me how you take eggs from chickens and uh so we came in and she made scrambled eggs for me her and her dog who was there and her husband was traveling and she we started to, we'd worked all day and she was like let's just watch tv for a few minutes so we sat in her kitchen <laughs> and we watched the voice and i love the voice so we watched the voice but here you're watching the voice with olivia and john who's critiquing people and it was just like one of these crazy moments in your life and it was just such a fun night and afterwards you know we started working again till like two in the morning and she and it really she opened up she was like because I kept thinking well you know we have to get past the surface for this book on how she was feeling and like you said some of those topics that you know she might have not want to talk she maybe skirted over the years but she really really opened up which was exciting to to hear the real stories for really the first time what was the first thing that you recall her really opening up on and sharing more than you expected? I thought it was fascinating her early journey because, you know, she comes from a family of geniuses, you know, they're, they're all of these professors and headmasters at college and very academic family. Parents got divorced. She ends up with her mom. She wants to be a singer. So she told, funny stories from her early days, both in Australia and London, her and her mom moved to London where she was with her best friend, Pat. They were a girl group at the time and they would go on dates to get breakfast in the morning, which isn't what you thought, but they go on dates. We're going to have dinner and we're going to steal the dinner rolls for breakfast. But in one date, she was funny. The guys thought that there was going to be a little bit more happening and they actually ran, you know, with the dinner rolls in their pocketbooks for uh, a bus stop just to get away after dinner because uh, they didn't want the guys to think the wrong thing. So, you know, she had, she had a struggle and 
super fascinating to me was her early days in Hollywood too. You know, she came here with, you know, hopes of a recording contract and a concert schedule and lived at a hotel and not Beverly Hills even. And it was a hotel filled with musicians, Don Henley, part of the Eagles. They all lived there during those days. And, you know, she said it was, it was funny, you know, who, who was there and just how tough it was, you know, to break in as a female singer. And then, and then of course, I think how most people my age know her from, it starts with Greece. I mean, I think everybody, everybody from the eighties generation um, has some relationship with the movie Greece. And you, obviously the two of you talk a lot about that in the book. It seems like she really had to almost be, she really had to be talked into it. She did. She was, she was really cooking by then as a singer, many hit singles, a uh, little country, a few country hits, please, Mr. Please that album. And, you know, she was at producer Alan Carr's house. She thought just for a fun, interesting dinner and little known fact is she had done a movie in Australia about a wild band and it didn't do well. So she was very leery of acting. So when he proposed her star, her starring role in Greece, she sort of laughed. She was like, no way. First of all, I'm 29. I'm not going to play an 18 year old. It's I'll be laughed. I'll be a laughing stock. And uh, he was like, no, we know you're perfect for it. John Travolta knows you're perfect. And back in those days, John Travolta wasn't John Travolta. He was just this young actor who was on Welcome Back, Cotter. He had one movie in the can called Saturday Night Fever, and nobody knew if that was going to be a decent thing. And then this Grease role that he was offered. So that was the crazy thing. John Travolta was just, she said this guy who she had seen in Hollywood, he had, I think she said a lemon colored car, like a lemon (laughs) BMW. And they'd pull up at Satellites and she'd look because he was, you know, he was very handsome and they wave or smile or something. And uh, so cut to that dinner again. And Alan Carr was like, no, we think you can do it. John wants to work with you. And she was like, no. And Alan Carr said, well, what if I sent John to your house to talk to you? She was like, oh, okay. And uh, and then John Travolta did come to her house by the beach. And she said from the first minute, he was so charming and wonderful. They rode horses. They hung out on the beach. And he convinced her just to come do a screen test at Paramount. And, you know, you go to these studios, it's huge. You're always lost. I've been to a million studios. But she said at the gate, he was basically waiting for her, brought her back. And, they, you know, they read and, and she, it was just like magic. They knew that was it. And they were like, look at these rushes. And they just did some basic makeup, put her hair in a ponytail. They didn't do the whole Sandy look, but... But uh, right there, they knew from the, that little chemistry test that that was it. It seems to me that that there's a there's a deeper connection between her and John Travolta than she's she's generally led on in the past. And the book talks about that a little bit in the sense that John was in a relationship uh, with uh, one of the actresses from The Boy in the Plastic Bubble at the time, and I think she was involved with someone. But do you, do you think, or did she ever let on to the fact that like you know had had they been available, do you think they they would have become a romantic item? I think that everybody was so rooting for that. They're such a beautiful couple together. But the truth was she was in a relationship with her manager at the time, uh, you know, a serious relationship. And he was in a relationship 
serious relationship with Diana Highland, who was in the boy in the plastic bubble. And also the first season of eight is enough. She was the mom. And um, Diana Highland had cancer and John Travolta was devastated by her death. And um, that, that was, you know, super sad. So she, she was, she said many times, she's like, it's just one of those things in life where there was never the right time. You know, they were always loved each other as friends, but it just, that the, the fates didn't come together for that. And, and she said, you know, but just a beloved friend. And a few times while we were working, she was like, you know what? I don't remember the date of this or that day. Let's FaceTime John, which, you know, that I was like, let's yes let's please <laughs> and uh so all of a sudden john travolta would be on facetime and there he was and and he'd be like hi ladies and and i had interviewed john travolta many times doing my regular reporting work so it was like so funny and we'd be like hey olivia let's we'll tell you this story about when john took his shirt off at this junket and showed us his abs and or when john came to this junket for pulp fiction and taught us all how to dance and and he was like oh i remember that and she was laughing because she had never heard those stories before so it was really funny but he has a razor sharp memory of every everything that happened too so but yeah it just it never aligned and then she ended up marrying uh, Matt, who she has her daughter Chloe with, and he ended up marrying a very sad, you know, that his wife had j- has just passed, Kelly Preston. Sure. So it just never, never. And then she was so in love with her husband John, who was with her till the end. So yeah, it just it never came together. John uh, gets a few words in in the book as well. How did that come about? Did you talk to John separately, or did I mean I know he he speaks out, and you hear the words of John Travolta quite a bit in the book. Just curious how that came about. Yeah, I did speak to John Travolta separately too, because we thought, you know, it's so weird to talk about someone while they're sitting there. Sure, so, sure. you know, that's always weird. So, so yeah, we had some private sessions too. And also Barry Gibb, one day she goes, oh, people, I guess I didn't even know this. Fans were rooting at one point for Barry Gibb and her to get together. Ooh. Remember how handsome Barry Gibb was? Sure, yeah, 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 yeah. And, um, and he, he was... So he came to the phone to say, no, no, he's been with his wife like a thousand years. They were just best <laughs> friends. And um, and then at the end, Barry Gibbs said to me, he's like, what's your favorite Bee Gees song? And I, it took me two seconds because I grew up in the official Bee Gees home. But I, I, was, I was like, nice on Broadway. And he sang it on the FaceTime, which is was like one of those moments where I was like, oh, I love, this was amazing. So, and you know, members of ABBA can't, I mean, it didn't matter who it was for this book. If she just said it, these people came to the phone in like five seconds. Wow. Everybody from Greece basically talked and, um, you know, she just has so many friends. And, and then of course her husband, uh, John, it, you know, who's such an amazing scientist and he works with herbs and really like an amazing love story, amazing husband with her. He, you know, we spoke separately too. Uh, you mentioned Alan Carr earlier, and I remember reading that he had wanted her to appear in Can't Stop the Music. Right. Remember wow. that movie? Yo, gosh. He wanted you can... her to appear in that, but she had already signed for Xanadu, and she I... had really high hopes for Xanadu. I know it didn't do what she had, what, what she thought it would do and what a lot of people thought it would do. Uh, it's obviously become a cult classic since then. Did did she ever articulate her any disappointment? I mean, 
I got to imagine that to some degree, she had to feel a little let down by that. She had hopes on two levels. One, that the music would be amazing and the movie. And, and you know, the movie got terrible reviews, which I think always stings. But, but she said she got to dance with Gene Kelly in that movie, which was a thrill and a miracle because she had fallen during dance practice on her tailbone and she had to be rushed to the hospital, even though she said, no, no, I'm fine. They rushed her to the hospital and she had a bruised tailbone. You can just imagine how much that must've hurt and still had to do a dance with Gene Kelly of all people who was helping choreograph the dance. And Gene Kelly insisted. She said that no one was in the room except the cinematographer and the director. So, you know, that was a challenge for her and, you know, but the, if you go back, that soundtrack's amazing. Oh, sure. Till this day. I mean, it's great. <laughs> I listened to it. I listened to it far more than I probably should. And I probably I know, watched the movie far. Uh, my wife would tell you, I watched the movie far more than I should. That song, Magic, how, how amazing. And she really used that song for so many years to talk about other things like cancer mm. survival and meeting people and, miracles in life so that that just so many classic songs i don't think i appreciated it at the time no the whole whole gene kelly angle because as a i think i was i would have been 13 or 14 years old when xanadu came out and gene kelly probably would not have been much more than a footnote to me at the time It, it wasn't until i became an adult and and understood his role in hollywood that i realized well you know how how imposing that must have been for her to 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 share a soundstage with him. So imposing, and she's not a she's the first to admit she's not a dancer. So the idea you're going to do a dance with Gene Kelly and the rest of it, you're on roller skates. That's where she fell and hurt her tailbone. She fell on the roller skates. So so it's completely intimidating, and you're doing this experimental kind of film. So and then coming up the pressure of coming off a big hit like Grease. They're all eyes are on you. What are you going to do next? So, yeah, she she was very zen about handling pressure, though. That's good. I mean, at the same time, she's she had a music career that was, you know, would have been the envy of any icon of, of any decade. So, I mean, I guess if if the worst thing that you could say about someone is that they had a they had a they had a box office bomb that later became a cult classic. That's that's not a bad uh, trade off. Not a bad one because first you have an iconic film, Grace, that will last forever. And now you have a cult classic in your bag. So that that's pretty good. By the time the Let's Get Physical album comes out and she de- she decided, I think, now correct me if I'm wrong, she did a music video for every song on the album. She did. And she was freaking, she said, about that song, Physical, because there's lines in there where she was like, no way can I sing those lines. So like, let me hear your body talk and things like that. She's like, that's not me. But she said one night before one, I think before one of the Grammy award shows, her hairdresser was over thinking about Grammy looks. And he was like, and she had that beautiful long blonde hair. He was like, Olivia, let's just cut off, cut it all off. And she was like, okay, we'll try something new. Like she was very progressive about things. And she was like, just do it. Well, you know, what's the worst thing that'll happen? The hair will grow back. And he did that short little cut. And she said it helped. Like she felt kind of sassy in the cut. They put the headband on her. And, but she did want, remember that video had 
a bunch of guys that were like a little bit out of shape and and <laughs> she she insisted the video be funny too uh, it couldn't just be some let's look at everybody's perfect body kind of video so so that was funny too but yeah she she did so many videos and uh that song i i think i hear that song once a day now oh sure yeah and i mean she it seems like she understood the value of mtv and music videos long before most of her you know colleagues did she really understood all the components though the hair the makeup the the iconic looks that were copied. She said they got to a point where headbands were sold out all over the world. It seemed like, and you know, every woman was going in and getting that little choppy haircut. I mean, she was such a trendsetter and, you know, back in the Greece days, a lot of girls were going in getting some, what of a modern look of what she called quote, bad Sandy. So there's, she said there was good Sandy, good girl, Sandy, bad Sandy. So she, she was like, you know, down to those spiked red shoes she wears in the big grease final number, Mm -hmm. which she said came out of a pile of shoes in her closet. It was no big deal. They just said, find some shoes you like and bring them to the set. But I mean, everything about it was, you know, very, very iconic for forever. You know, those shoes still sell those kind of shoes. So, you know, just, she knew every component, a great song, and you know uh, the great look, the great cinematography. She she was really on top of it. When when the time came um, during your conversations with her, when the when the the direction of the book turned away from the music and the movies and more towards her personal life and um, her health struggles, obviously the, the struggle she had with pregnancy, was it a little bit more difficult at that point to sort of to pull her into the the sunlight? You know, not really, because I, uh, my mom went through a cancer battle too. And, you know, Olivia was like the most, I can't even, there's no other word for optimistic person. She not only, she didn't just have that like, yeah, I'm going to beat this kind of thing, but you could see someone not really wondering if that's the truth. Olivia believed she was going to beat it. I mean, believed it with every cell in her body. She told me once when she first was diagnosed, which was a really terrible time in her life. Her dad passed away. She had to fly to Australia to to his funeral. And at the same time, her doctor was calling the first time to say you have breast cancer. And it was 4th of July weekend, so they couldn't get her in anywhere when she came back. You know, she had to wait to get the final, final results of what they were going to do. But she she ended up on chemo and she had surgery and she ended up on chemo. And she said even during chemo, she would imagine that there was the gold liquid flowing through her veins that was like such precious gold that it was curing her of this thing. And she, you know, sitting there, that was her cure. And and this was what was going to have to happen. And she was just so positive about it. And she'd end every chemo session with a different girlfriend. They'd go out for a milkshake or whatever she could tolerate and they'd go to a movie. And so she just, life went on and, and she had a young child too. Her daughter was maybe four or five years old when it first happened, but she was, you know, very positive and and really wanted to talk about that to encourage other women. And, And she goes, it's not Pollyanna where I didn't have nights where I was up all night scared to death that my daughter was going to lose her mother or that I would die at this young age. She goes, I I had those nights too, 
but she was like, but her positivity was really, it was really infectious and, and, and sort of, a, it was just amazing. Where do you think the positivity came from? I mean, where, where did she find that? I mean, it seems like such a rare quality for her to, to be that optimistic all the time. I think some of it came from her own mother who really sort of had it tough. Her dad was the headmaster of a girl's college. They ended up divorcing when Olivia was just a little girl. And it was a time where women didn't even work back in Australia. So her mom had to get a job as a bookkeeper, which, you know, kind of people looked down on. It was, she was a working woman and, you know, but her mom just plowed on, like, this is our circumstance and we're, we're barreling through this. And, and even when she said, I want to be a singer, her mom was like, okay, we're going to, now we're tackling that. And I think, I think she, she really loved her mom and, and, and her sister Rona too, was big support for her. And then, you know, this later in life romance she had with John, uh, her, her husband, it's just, he was really such a strong influence in her life too. Looking back, what do you think that she was most proud of in terms of her career or, or, or alternate, alternatively, you know, was it, was there something about her life that she was more proud of? What, what do you think were the, the milestones that she, that she really held on to? I think the two milestones and there's so many milestones, but I, I think one thing is her living Newton John cancer center in Australia. He came to her. I think it was about 25 years ago and said, you know, we'd like to turn part of what was an old hospital tuberculosis wing into a cancer center. And she was like, I'll do it with you, but I have huge stipulations, which are one, it has to be a bright, airy, sunshiny place. It can't be a dungeon. It has to have big windows in every room and music rooms and an atrium where people can go relax and meditate and beautiful grounds. And she was so specific. And that she's so proud of. And she actually ended up there. She was in Australia during this last battle with cancer. And she really had a health crisis and ended up in her own center. And she would keep a little cap on so nobody knew it was her. And she said it was really weird being a patient there. But she saw the loving care. I mean, really super loving nurses were her only hired. And the doctors were like top of the world doctors. And, and it still goes on cancer center and cutting edge research. So she, it's a tremendous value. And also her goal was to cure cancer. And so all the research that she started before she passed that will go on is amazing was, was one of her great life legacies. And, and, and the other one is her daughter, Chloe. She just loved her daughter so much. And, you know, they were, they were so close and Chloe's a lovely, lovely girl too. Ta super talented singer. So I think between, those were two things that she's so proud of. What uh, was your reaction? What was your first thought um, on August 8th when you heard that she had passed? I actually heard it on August 7th because um, I'm doing a project for someone else in her orbit right now. And then he told me, he was like, it's probably the, probably the last days. And, and I hadn't, hadn't talked to her for a few months. I, I have, a pu I have two Labradoodles and I had gotten a puppy and there was also nothing else she loved more than animals. So I was sharing puppy pictures with her on and off online. And, you know, and she loved that. I mean, just, she had miniature horses on her 
ranch. She had beautiful dogs, cats, kittens, roosters, everything. So we were sharing puppy pictures, but I, I was super, I was really super, super sad to, to hear it because she, she'd fought the, she'd fought such a valiant fight, but, and she, she says in the book and she would say it all the time. I just want to pass on my poor, you know, in my house, you know, where I can just look out on the land and it was beautiful rolling Hills type of land uh, mountains in the background. And she said, I just want to be here with my daughter, which she was and her husband, which she was, and look out on the land and, and just pass quietly at home. So, so one of my thoughts was I was super glad that that's what happened, that she didn't pass in a hospital. And then uh, the second was that, you know, that she just such, such a brave, inspirational woman that, that they'll, they'll never be another like her. Cindy, it's been great having you on the show. Um, it's an amazing book. I hope everyone gets a chance to read it. It's called uh, Living Newton John, Don't Stop Believing. Thanks so much, Steve. And, and everybody who's listening, you know, if you really feel bad about it, look up her cancer center online and even a dollar, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. Anything towards cancer research would, would make her so happy. But on those days Wow, that was a great chat. Yeah, and again, it just it paints this picture of ONJ as exactly who you think she is. You know, yes. you, at the top of the show, we played a, a clip that um, Olivia sent to Steve, congratulating him for 15 years of the podcast. It's amazing we can still sit down. That was so completely genuine and so thoughtful and so kind. And it's just... It, it kind of you know restores a little bit of your faith in humanity to find out that she really is that way. Yeah. Well, we, I interviewed her about 12 years ago. She was performing in Clearwater when I was still working for the newspaper there. Okay. And we, we had about 20 minutes with her. And she was the nicest person in the world. I'll put a link to the interview somewhere on the uh, blog page, and you can go find it if you want to relive it. But like we said in you know in our chat, she's she is definitely a person who is guarded about her personal life. I mean, she her answers are exactly what she wants them to be. There's there's really no such thing as a gotcha moment, right? With uh, with Olivia, I asked this question to Cindy, but I'm I'm curious what you think. What what do you think Olivia will be best remembered for? Well, I think that her her real lasting legacy is her foundation. But I think that 80s Nation will primarily remember her, and I'm sorry, Xana dudes, this isn't the answer you want. I think we are going to remember her primarily for Greece. I would definitely say we'll remember her for her movies. There, there will be those those hardcore Xanadu uh, fans, inc- myself included, who still worship that movie. Um, the night that she passed away, I did I rewatch it? You bet I did. <laughs> did I rewatch Greece the very next day? You bet I did. Yeah, and, and then you messaged me the day saying you were listening to the Xanadu soundtrack. I did after I finished the uh, the interview on my run. I put on the Xanadu soundtrack, and 
you know, it's I, I remember listening to kind of the hits on the the ELO side. Be like, oh, I don't listen to the other side, but honestly, the other side is pretty fun. Yeah, uh, you know, Olivia has a great voice. There's no two ways about it, and she knows how to use it. And people know how to write songs for it. Yeah, that's a good point. I think Cindy's point about um, ONJ being proud of the music, like like she wanted Xanadu to endure as a movie, but also for its music. And in that sense, I think it was a success. Yeah. I mean, that movie, we've talked about Xanadu at some length on the Xanadu show, but that movie is just, it's it's like 15 years too late. You know, it's a golden age of Hollywood, big musical production number where like if the fa- the fact that the plot didn't make much sense, who cares? It's a big musical number, you know, let's, <laughs> let's roller skate and do all this other stuff. And that, that would have been perfectly fine. And audiences wouldn't have minded that one bit. Somehow by the time we get to 1980, you know, we've gotten a little more cynical and we're asking a little bit more from those movies. And so I, I think it suffered because it's, it's a little out of time. It tries to be in that time. And it, obviously the roller skating kind of sets it there, sure. but it just, it, it doesn't, it just didn't fit the vibe. Unfortunately, I would try to make a case that her 1983 movie, two of a kind should be remembered, but it's, it's not a great movie, but it has a great song twist of fate. You're right. That's a, that's the only thing I remember from that movie. It was nice seeing them together again. Yeah, I John guess that's and, true, right? But overall, it, it was kind of the same sort of idea of a plot that Xanadu was, which it just didn't convert well into the 80s. But do I still own it on DVD? I certainly do. <laughs> will I still put it on from time to time? I certainly will. Um, will I fast forward sometimes to the more likable scenes? Yes, I will. Well, you know, you you, you dabble a little. You scene select. Yeah. I, I'm weird with movies. There there are movies that from the 80s that I know are not great movies. They mean something to me on a personal level, and so I rewatch them constantly. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm the same way. Right. Xanadu's that way for me. Valley Girl's that way for me. Uh, you know, there, there's, I probably have about – stupid me, I was sitting there watching Gandhi – two days ago and then i switched <laughs> on chariots of fire i mean you never know what it is that what that connects but it, when it connects it just it's there and it's there to stay and i think her music and her movies did that yeah so what's your favorite movie moment of uh, oh god those three Either, okay 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 um uh, I, I'm, I'm gonna say the finale of xanadu where kira disappears mm-hmm and then Olivia Newton-John returns uh, in the form of a waitress. And uh, Sonny just wants to talk to her. And the movie ends with the two of them sitting together just talking. It's, I, I think it's brilliant. Yeah. No, that's good. Um, I think the other one that everyone's expecting, and I will not disappoint you, is five words. You know them. You love them. Tell me about it, stud. Yeah. 
Sandy at the end of Greece. And, uh, you know, it's funny. Every time we watch this movie, and we watched it with our kids, and I remember my daughter turning to us and saying, this is a great lesson. Change yourself for a man. <laughs> like, okay, that's fair. I, uh, well, he changed, fair. too. He, he changed, changed, too. Of course, he changes right back. He's like, okay, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> You're going to wear those pants. I'm in. That scene, that transformation is amazing. And just the, you know, the way that the, the pink ladies are kind of helping her through it, like throw the cigarette down and squish it out. Just like, oh, oh yeah, okay, I'd get rid of this thing. It's it's a great scene. It's a great moment. And that whole, you know, that last, you know, big musical number at the end of of Greece is an absolute yeah. favorite. I, it's it's funny that you mentioned the whole um, coaching her on what to do with the cigarette. That I, I didn't think anyone else really loved that little tiny details either. I, I that's that's one of my favorite things. No, it's a brilliant moment. Yeah. If you want to talk about our music career, <laughs> which we really should more so than the movie career, as important it, as it was, it spans so many decades. She had twenty six studio albums. Oh my six, gosh! Six live six live albums, fourteen compilations, and six soundtracks. She has sold uh, an estimated one hundred million records, making her one of the best uh, selling artists of all time. She has five number one and ten other top ten singles and two number one um, solo albums. Oh, my gosh. I think that's more sales than we have podcast downloads. We got like <laughs> 600 and some episodes. Yeah, that's crazy. It all started in the 60s um, for her, but you have to go by, way back to 1971 for her first hit, which was this song called If Not For You. If not for you yeah it's definitely 70s uh, yeah. but, you, but you can hear you recognize the voice yeah absolutely again great voice in the 70s for her it was just one number one hit after another i honestly love you have you never been mellow Please, Mr. Please, something better to do. Let it shine and come on over. Mm, so, okay. Stuff your parents listen to. <laughs> yeah, you heard it on the radio. If, you're a, if you were alive then, you heard it on the radio. You couldn't get away from it. I don't know. Like My dad drove around with the CB radio on all the time. I, all I heard was all that craziness. And uh, uh, Afternoon Delight, uh, seemingly yeah, the on Starland Endless Local Band. Yeah. Oh. I think it was the late 70s. I mean, you'd have to say the late 70s with Greece is when the 80s generation first connects with her. Right. She really kicks it off with, you know, she's, well, I mean, she sings half the songs on that soundtrack, right? Yeah, right. You're the one that I want, hopelessly devoted to you, Summer Nights. The 80s. I think what's interesting about the 80s, and we mentioned it during the chat with Cindy, when her physical album came out, she made a music video for every song on the album. Every song. Nobody does that. Yeah. Not not then. No. Certainly not then. Even even I, later. No. <laughs> the record companies weren't going to pay for that, so They're fun to go back. They're all on YouTube. Go back and watch them. It looks like most of them were filmed on the same set in the same afternoon, but they have that wonderful early 80s MTV quality to them, you know, mm-hmm. like reflecting pools and um neon tubes. You, yeah, neon. I was just gonna oh. say neon. Some sort of neon effect. Uh, but they're fun, love and I, I, I love listening to Twist of Fate and Heart Attack. It is complete '80s fondue to look and watch her sing 
Take a Chance, uh, her duet with John Travolta in the yeah. in the mid eighties. I mean, yeah, forget about it. like this isn't just cheese. This is good cheese. Yeah, this is good cheese that you serve up with some nice bread, and maybe some freshly cut vegetables, and a nice crisp glass of uh, maybe some Sauvignon Blanc. Like this is the good cheese. You want this cheese. I love Sauvignon Blanc. I was See? Think, thankfully you mentioned that one because if you'd mentioned anything else, I'd been like, ah. Well, I know my do, audience. My audience you, have won. I got to keep <laughs> Spearsy happy, or he's going to kick me off the show. What was your favorite song from the eighties? I think my favorite of her stuff has got to be Physical, and you know, obviously there's a lot of forget single and double entendre. There's like quadruple entendre in this song, but I love how the video actually has. A, a bit of a funny aspect to it. It's not just, you know, it, I think she mentioned it in the interview, doesn't she? That's like, it wasn't just beefcake guys. There's a little bit of humor in it. I, I think when she made it, she realized that the song was maybe a little bodier than she had thought it was. And the best way to fix that was to come up with a video that was to poke some fun at it. Yeah. And it does for me. It's always going to be Xanadu. I never get tired of listening to this song. And uh, I probably listen to it far more than I should. <laughs> I, I know I always say there's no danger in letting nostalgia take over, but I sometimes put that to the test a few times. And uh, <laughs> the amount of times that I listen to the Xanadu soundtrack in general or watch the movie or listen to this song is proof that I have survived. It's always difficult for us to do a tribute show to one of our heroes who's passed. We've done too many of them over the years. When the end of the show comes, it's always hard to sort of sum up a person's life, their impact, their legacy, uh, what they mean to the fans appropriately, you know, in a podcast. Yeah. Thankfully, Olivia has her book. Don't Stop Believing, which, like I said, is only a, came out a year and a half ago. I'll let her finish her tribute. Here are the final paragraphs from the epilogue of her memoir, in her own words and in her own voice. Five decades in show business have taught me to have staying power. Maybe that power includes the will to just never give in. My will is iron strong because I still have so much to do. My dream is that I can see an end to cancer. I'd also love to ride horses and play tennis again. I will. My vision is me and John, a garden, and I'm an old happy lady. I see Chloe and her husband James. I see grandchildren, the horses, chickens, cats and dogs. Health and happiness for all. Thriving. Back on my stone bench in the rose garden, it's early morning and the birds are chirping. John is brewing coffee, and I'm giving Raven a quick toss of the ball. My dog races like the wind. And before I can put my throwing hand down, my husband captures it. Don't stop believing. 
Love and Light, Olivia. Olivia.